Welcome to the Mission Manhood Podcast, where mature masculinity is celebrated and encouraged. My name is Angela Abide, and I will be your host. Every week or so, I sit down with a man who is in the men's movement, helping men grow and thrive in their masculinity, someone who is exhibiting characteristics of mature masculinity, or someone who has a perspective that might be beneficial for those who are seeking to grow and develop in that area. As a woman, I have a unique perspective as a mother and a therapist, and I hope to contribute to the conversation in those ways. Thank you so much for joining, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Brian. Hi, Angela. Good to be with you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you. Just for the audience's sake, we met in 2016 at a Internal Family Systems Conference, and that's a therapeutic model that we both use in our work. Yes, uh, it's a very powerful model for those of your listeners who aren't familiar. It's been around for a few decades, and I use it in my uh, coaching practice, uh, but it has a lot of different applications. It's a very beautiful honoring model for um, system change at any level. And I think at that particular conference, I was probably dazed and confused trying to figure some things out. And I think we met in another uh, like breakout workshop and then later talked. And after that, you actually did a couple of coaching calls with me and that really helped me out a lot and helped me get some clarity about some things I was really struggling with. So I can attest to that. (laughs) I wanted to just kind of catch up with you and could you tell everybody a little bit about what you do and what your work is? Sure. I mentioned a moment ago, I am a coach and I primarily work in the business arena. I work with uh, companies and teams and individuals, usually executives or if I'm working at the individual level, but I work with uh, companies to help them figure out who they want to be when they grow up and how and how to do that in a way that is both successful, but also fulfilling. And so that can look a lot of different ways. Uh, a lot of the, sometimes I work on the, at the senior management team level where I'm helping them create really high performing teams, but also teams where they trust each other and they can tell each other the truth and they can be uh, ally, true allies rather than adversaries. Yeah. Uh, because uh, in the, in the corporate culture, there's a lot of adversarial relationships. Uh, people can get into survival mode uh, pretty easily. So I get, I think that's another way to say it. I sort of help companies and individuals get out of survival mode and into a much more generative relationship with each other so that they can support each other in creating whatever it is that they're trying to create in the world. Yeah. And I, I can imagine that the internal family systems would work really well with that, helping people kind of get more heart centered and seeing where they're agitated and learning to manage those parts of themselves instead of reacting from those parts. Exactly. Yeah. It's a way to, when, when people are either fearful or skeptical or resistant or uh, have been injured in organizational settings that people, you know, we, we all carry burdens with us from past experience and past injury. And it's a, it's really kind of relearning how to not lead from those burdens uh, because that limits our options and 
limits creativity, it limits possibility and innovation. And so, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a very, it's a very power, powerful application of that model. If somebody's going on a personal pursuit of sort of going deeper, getting more spiritual, it doesn't always naturally convert. Like I might be on a spiritual quest in my personal life or trying to build my family up, but then I go back to work and fall into those same patterns. So it sounds like you're just taking some of that and like, Hey, it works over here too. Yeah. I I find myself, I worked with a lot of people who would probably never be seen in a therapist office, Yeah, but they, but we, we're, we're looking at how do they show up as a whole person? And so I find it really fascinating and rewarding to work with people. And there's, and there's a healing element to it as well. So again, leading, you know, part of the work I do in the world is, is about living, seeing all of life as a gift and not just the parts of life that we welcome, but also the parts of life that the poet Rumi described as the unwelcomed guest, the unwelcome visitor. Yeah. How can we see the unwelcome guest in our life, whether that's illness or loss or disappointment as a gift in some way to, to, to aid us in our evolution. And uh, so that's a big, big part of my life's work is to, is to support people in living what I call gift consciousness, which is, is again, to see all of life through the lens of, of a potential gift and that, and that we're here to be a gift to each other in some way. And that to see every, really every moment, every interaction, every event, every relationship is an opportunity to give and receive gifts. Wow. That's really deep and, and powerful. And one thing that I love that you said is that some of the people that see you would never be caught in a therapist office. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for people to hear that just because you won't, don't want to do like traditional therapy, there are helpers and people out there that speak your language and can meet you exactly where you are. So exactly. just because you don't want to go to therapy, I totally mm-hmm. get that. One of my kids would never go to therapy. That's like a mm-hmm. death to him to sit down and talk yeah. about his feelings for an hour. But that doesn't mean there aren't men and women and other professionals that, that can meet him at yeah. his point of need. So. Well, I have a whole team of people that I work with. So I, it, I often joke, it takes a village to raise me. So yeah. <laughs> I have a whole village of different, whether it's a therapist or a coach or a shaman or a combination of people that I uh, lean on from time to time to support me on my journey. So I learned a long time ago, I can't, I can't do it by myself. One of the things that's counterintuitive, really, in order to be a king, in order to reach that, you have to learn the art of humility, really. You have to know where your weaknesses are and where you need help and support. And so when you're at that level of prideful prince, you know, you kind of have to get knocked down a couple of times before you realize that in order to get there where I want to go, I really need to accept the gifts that others are offering, like you said. Yeah, I just... um you know, we all have our blind spots and, and we all have our, what we sometimes call our growth edges mm-hmm. and we can't change what we don't acknowledge. Yeah. And, and I'm still learning, you know, I just turned 60 last month and I'm, you know, so I'm entering sort of a whole new chapter, it feels like, but I'm still both the teacher and the student and probably will be my whole life. I just came through a powerful seven-day intensive called the Hoffman process, uh, some of your listeners may know about. And, you know, I learned, I mean, that that really brought into clarity 
you know, all the patterns that, that I've been living from and some still live from. And so, you know, that was a really powerful process that is still alive in me now. So yeah. Just Mm -hmm. keep growing. Yeah. Right. Speaking of all the ugly gifts that we receive, you have recently been through the health crisis and Mm -hmm. offered to speak about that. And I thought that was very generous of you. I wanted to ask you first, if we can just hear a little bit about your story and kind of get to that point. Could you tell us a little bit about how you were shaped? How did you get to where you are? Like what were your role models, Mm. masculine role models? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't really have any when I was a kid. I I had I grew up with a dad who was uh, an alcoholic and was really uh, absent in a lot of ways, physically, uh, emotionally, spiritually, and because of his own pain. And I learned a lot more about his story through the Hoffman process that I mentioned earlier and why kind of a little bit more about his story and why I considered him to be a bit of a lost soul. And so uh, that didn't mean he wasn't a good person. It doesn't mean that he sure. didn't have good qualities, but but I didn't, he wasn't a role model for me in terms of something that I could look up to and model myself after. It was, you know, I didn't know he didn't know why he was there here on the planet. And so, and he, I didn't know what he stood for, or what his values were. I didn't, there was really nothing that I, that he passed down to me other than some really amazing qualities that were just part of who he was. I think he was a very kind man, not to me necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I don't know if you, you know, if, if you've ever had this experience or your listeners have, but at his, he died, you know, over two decades ago, but at his, at his memorial service uh, in Savannah, my, both my parents met in Savannah, Georgia, but it is, uh, at his memorial service, I had several people come up to me and say, your dad was such a, such a kind person. And I just, I kind of remember thinking to myself, I wish I'd known that guy. And I think that's a pretty common experience where as kids, we don't get to experience our parents the way other people do. Uh, a stepfather came into my life when I was 10 years old. By t- today's standards, he would definitely be considered a narcissist yeah. and uh, was very full of rage and was really about survival. And he was a, a street fighter by nature. He, he thought the world was against him. And he was out to mitigate any threats to him. And I was a threat to him from day one. He was threatened by my mother's love for me. He thought there was not, he kind of bought into a scarcity belief around love. There was only so much to love to go around. And I was uh, the number one threat to him. So that shaped our experience. So again, at his core essence, not a bad person. He was a seeker in his own way wanting to understand the universe and, and how it worked. and But that was not a, a, a role model for me other than what I didn't want to be. Yeah. Uh, and then I had a brother, uh, older brother, who passed last year, John. Interestingly, my dad and my stepfather and my brother were all named John. And my dad went by Jack, but my stepfather went by John and my brother went by John. But my, my brother passed uh, last year due to his own health crisis. Uh, um, Another lost soul, I think, in some way. And, uh, you know, he ran away uh, around age 14. He was four years older than me. So uh, I don't remember his physical presence much Mm -hmm. in the home. Uh, He 
battled uh, drug addiction at various points of his life and was, again, in his own, had a lot of suffering that, again, not a bad person. He was uh, had his own wonderful qualities. Uh, he was a musical genius, huge heart, a, a very big heart, but really struggled. But it wasn't, again, somebody that I really was able to look up to and say, hey, I want to be like that. So those were my primary male role models. It was not until, thanks to my big sister, in, in large part, Jerry, she helped me get to a summer camp in the North Georgia mountains uh, when I was about age 10. And I just, uh, I, I really gravitated to that whole environment and I began to meet, that's when I began to, to meet male figures that were uh, potentially positive role models for me. In fact, the the, the guy that I'm going to, who called me a few minutes ago, um, who I've been friends with since I was uh, 15 years old, uh, Tad, uh, he was a couple years older than me. He, he was like, he's always been like a brother to me and someone that uh, I have loved for, you know, for decades. And so those, so those male role models and figures did begin to emerge, but it was not until a little bit later in life. Working with men, a lot of times when we're looking at that ideal, like those archetypes of masculinity, people usually err on the side of being too low or too high. And mm -hmm. it's almost like you went from your mm -hmm. father who was so low, he couldn't rise up to the challenge to the stepfather who was just so intense. Neither one of them had the balance, mm -mm. but they erred on opposite sides. And it makes me wonder if like your mother was even unconsciously going from the frying pan into the fire. Like she didn't have a guy who could do what she needed him to do. And so kind of an overcorrection, she ended up with a man who was very intense. That's very possible. I haven't really thought about it in quite those terms, but yeah, I think that certainly the the fire to the frying pan or whatever the <laughs> whatever that <laughs> the yeah. So, um, but yeah, I think that there's some truth to that for sure. Another question that I've asked my clients sometimes is, when at what age did you start to notice? Hmm. And it sounds like it could have been even when you went to camp and had that contrast because as kids, you don't know that that's abnormal. You don't know that's right. crazy behavior necessarily. That's all you know. So was that contrast like an eye opener or had you already figured out that these guys, you know? No, I don't. I mean, I knew obviously on some level that this was not healthy and not, and, and was, uh, but I didn't have that. Um, I didn't have the alternative experience, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I remember, uh, you know, when I was 30, I had a, a health crisis, developed a chronic illness, which I ultimately healed from, thankfully. But that was really my entry into therapy. We, we you know, we, we talked about therapy a little earlier. Yeah. Uh, I, I began to see a male therapist at age 30. And that was kind of a, that was an eye opener for me because the, 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 you know, he was able to relate to me from a male experience in a healthy way. And that was all new to me other than uh, beginning to you know, develop those friendships, as I said, in summer camp and, and, but that someone who is an authority figure and a therapist is in a way an authority figure, I think. Yeah. And they have expertise and you kind yeah. of look up a to friendly, them. A friendly authority yeah. figure. Really. It was in my case, but that was really a huge eye opener for me. Uh, and then later another close male friend of mine, VJ, who's still like a brother to me and was a healthy 
still is healthy male figure in my life. Uh, he introduced me to the men's work and men's men's work people like John Lee, people like Robert Bly. So I, I began to join a larger community of men who were grappling with with their own version of what it is to be a man. So I I remember going to with with to with VJ to these retreats for men in the North Alabama mountains and you know a a room full of 130 guys listening to people read poetry or being in a workshop looking at relationship of the male the healthy relationship of the male to their mother or, you know, so that, that, that was very formative as well to be able to join, to one, be aware that there was a larger community of men asking some of the same questions and being on a similar path. And that was very formative as well. Most of the men that I've interviewed have credited some form of brotherhood Mm -hmm. as transformational for them. There's something about being with others and that shared experience and forming relationships that you can rely on and wrestling with it. I'm, I need more of that in my life now. I haven't, um, I've, I've started a couple of men's groups in my lifetime. I was, I started one when I was in my twenties and later in life, I I started one. I miss that right now. I need, I need to create some version of that in my life, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I need that. I need that brotherhood. I need that community. I need that tribe of uh, peaceful warrior. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's so important. A couple of other things that you said, one was I always talk about how if you're not willing to do that inner work, that your children will suffer. And I think, you know, your story is kind of evident of that. Maybe your father and stepfather were ignorant. They didn't know, even know that they could do inner work. Uh, that wasn't part of the language then, but it is part of the language now. And what you experienced or these two guys that the world experienced one way, but your filters can only hold up for so long. You know, you get home and you're tired and you're annoyed, or maybe there's not enough money to pay the bills that month. And whatever's inside of you that's not healed is going to come out on these people that you love, you know. Mm-hmm. And the other point was the tra- the power of having others that will stand up and be a model like summer camp or boys clubs or church groups or whatever that give those kids a chance to see something different. That's so powerful. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, um, you know, just yesterday, um, my cousin, uh, Michael, who, uh, is, uh, teaches gifted kids in Atlanta. Um, uh, one of his students is, is a young entrepreneur and he said, Hey, could you spend a little bit of time with this young man and because uh, he's really excited about wh- you know where he wants to go in his career and and so I spent about 30 minutes with him yesterday uh, you know via video and that was so one rewarding this young kid who is just about to go into the world for the first time and to be able to share some of my wisdom about mm-hmm. how it works in the business world and how do you as a as a young how do you as a young entrepreneur put your mark on the world you know i love that i mean i was just so grateful to have that opportunity to spend that time with him and i said you know please keep me posted on your journey stay in touch with me i want to hear how things are going and i know that as i was coming along there were people who did that for me especially in particular men that that extended themselves to me and helped shape my path. I remember one in particular um, when I was in college at University of Georgia, there was a, a Lutheran campus minister, Ed Ralph was his name, I think. 
And I remember that I would just go and sit in his office every time. I wasn't a Lutheran, but he was just uh, this person I gravitated to. And I could just go sit in his office and talk about anything. And at one point he said, hey, because I wanted to become, be a journalist. My first career was as a journalist. And uh, he said, you know, you might want to think about this, you know, working for this organization in Washington, D.C., which I ended up doing. And I just, you know, those, those influences are priceless. And yeah, I agree. You know, they're just like a treasure for your journey. And uh, I'm so grateful to the people who extended themselves to me. I think you mentioned the word generative earlier, and that's another characteristic of that king, that he's continually giving life to people. Mm -hmm. And so when you can make your life about life and not just about yourself, and I think as a society, we're so caught up in that, what's best for me and making myself look good on Instagram but also right. returning that life to life as a gift is is transformative for people. I, I, I wouldn't say it comes naturally to me. Yeah. <laughs> but I I wanna be I wanna be more generous uh, and and make and that uh, well, I mean, I, I, I say that, but my life's work has been all about being of service. So I yeah. don't want to shortchange that. But I think um, there is I think I do think it's important to to always be able to, uh, to, to, to be generous with it, whether that's with your love, um, your wisdom, your money, your present, yeah. just your presence. Yeah. Presence and, is huge. And, and, and to be able to, to extend that and look for opportunities to, to give that in a variety of settings, I think is, is a great practice. Definitely. I agree. Well, tell me a little bit about what happened to you lately, because you know we sure. talked about those ugly gifts and yes. your health, health crisis, and yeah. So you know, I I had kind of waltzed through life relatively healthy, I would say, um, given uh, other than some aches and pains, and I did. Uh, so I I got a PSA blood check, and I guess that it it had spiked from the yeah. time maybe a year before, and a, a fairly typical. Uh, next step is to do a biopsy when that happens. Mm-hmm. So I had a biopsy and uh, that came back cancer positive in a couple of sections of my prostate. And that was that was in, uh, I think I got the news around September 2020. I opted for removal of the prostate via robotic surgery in November 2020. And thankfully, yesterday I actually had a, a PSA blood check result of 0.09, which is essentially undetectable. So as so I got good news yesterday that there's no reoccurrence according to my results. So I'm grateful for that. That diagnosis and surgery and the recovery from surgery has been a lot more challenging than I, I don't even know if I knew what to expect, but I certainly was not prepared. I mean, certainly the the medical office, the urology practice that I was working with at the time didn't do anything to prepare me for the emotional, yeah. mental, spiritual, archetypal challenges that awaited me with that surgery. And, and so I've really had to sort of figure that out on my own. With some, I, had, I have tapped into a community of, again, warriors who have been down that path and there are some wonderful groups and communities out there to help you navigate. But I really shut down, I would say, for about 14 months after the after the diagnosis and surgery. I just, uh, it, I, I kind of went into a bit of a, a low-grade depression because, you know what, I didn't, 
really bank on was that your whole identity of man, as a man uh, shifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, as one person said to me, the prostate is the uh, seat of the soul for the man. That's interesting to me. And I've never heard that. And being a woman, it's just on the outside of my awareness. I've heard people say prostate cancer, I'm dealing with this. But like you said, nobody ever talks about the effect that mm-hmm. it has on the psyche. So you told me before we started, I could ask you whatever mm-hmm. I wanted to. Was it just a mental thing or were there actual physical manifestations to things change for you that way? All of the above. I mean, I think yeah. that, you know, my, I think losing a, a, this, this organ. And so I think that's a, there's a grief in, in losing that yeah. part of yourself, but also it's part of your, you know, your ability and, and every, every man is different in terms of how they respond to this particular uh, diagnosis yeah. and surgery and there, everybody's recovery is different. Uh, for me, the physical challenges were uh, what was predicted, which was urination and incontinence uh, for a time. And then also on the being able to have a full erection, uh, dealing with ED issues, which, you know, is has definitely been the case for me. I mean, I'm still navigating that path. The incontinence pretty much for me has has cleared up. I mean, there's occasional leakage, but that's pretty normal. And for the ED issues, that's come back to some degree, but not fully. And, you know, part of it is, you know, it takes your body a while to heal, but it also, you know, everybody's body's different. Everybody, everybody was in a different place before the surgery. So, but what it does, what it did for me was it sort of, uh, forced me to evaluate my identity as a man, Mm -hmm. because I think for most men, their ability to perform in the world, whether it's sexual or otherwise, that's part of their identity. And if that is taken away from you, even temporarily, that causes you to think about, well, who am I now? Sort of like, I I remember listening to a cassette tape from the author, Stephen Levine, who wrote books like Gradual Awakening and Healing Through Life. I think I I remember it was Healing Through Life and Death. Or Anyway, he worked with a lot of people who were terminally ill and kind of garnered a lot of wisdom. And I remember him giving a talk and kind of saying, well, if you talk to somebody and they say, well, who are you? Well, I'm a carpenter. Well, what happens if you can't use your hands? Well, I'm a mother. Well, what happens if your child dies? So it, it, I think for men, their identity is wrapped up at least a, a large degree about their ability to perform. And whether that's performing in business, whether that's performing in the bedroom, whether that's performing athletically. So I think that it forced me to really begin to look at who am I as a man, particularly at this stage of my life, how closely identified is that with my sexuality, with my ability to perform sexually? And can I expand my awareness and my consciousness about what it is to be a man? I now see this surgery, the diagnosis and the surgery is part of an initiation into much more expanded way of seeing myself as a man. Yeah. I love that word initiation. It's like, you think you did it and yeah. it was done and I was initiated, but it's like we keep getting initiated into these new levels Exactly, and forcing yourself to go deeper with your essence and who you are. And what does it really mean if I can't perform in the way that I always have? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, I had already started to ask the question of, you know, we hear the terms divine masculine. Yeah. 
or healthy masculine. Yeah. And, and I'd already been in that question, but I th- the prostate cancer diagnosis and surgery and recovery was my initiation really into that journey. And, and in that way, it is a gift. I have begun to be able to see it as a gift to be able to really push me into a whole new way of seeing myself in the world. And, and, and also, I think for, for men, particularly their relationship to power, something that we have to come to terms with, what is a healthy relationship to power look like, both within ourselves, within our, with our partners, with our communities, and in the world at large? What does that look like? Yeah. I've experienced some similar thoughts with just the whole aging process mm-hmm. and from the masculine, yeah, that, that virality or being able to perform in that way. And then for the woman, I think you have to die to that need to be desired mm-hmm. as you become invisible. Mm-hmm. People don't look at you in the same way. And so it is a grief and a loss and what I'm comparing it to is like the transfer from external power to internal power. Yes. And I don't know if that's what you kind of mean by the divine masculine. I do think that, I mean, I, you know, I, I hadn't really thought about this word in a while, but you know, the whole idea of like the man is conqueror, uh-huh. like I'm not in the conquering stage anymore. Yeah. This is, you know, sort of whether that's sexually or uh, even professionally or so I, it's kind of like, it is a different mode. I mean, I am now it's about, for me, it's about creating, you know, now entering my sixties, it's about legacy is beginning to be about what is the legacy that I want to leave behind. And that's both on a personal level and a professional level. So I'm one of the things I'm doing is creating a coaching Institute where I'm going to be coaching and mentoring coaches in a methodology that I've developed over 25 years. And so that's, my legacy project on a professional level so that I can give my, I want to make sure that I fully give my gift. I mean, if we think about back to the living gift consciousness, you know, I often ask people that I work with at some point, and I need to ask myself my, this same question from time to time is what is the gift that I came here to give and am I giving it? And if I'm not giving it, why is that? I think if we can ask ourselves those series of questions at different stages of our life. I think it's uh, important. So for me, professionally, what is the gift that I'm here to give? And then also personally, uh, I feel like that's almost personally is the greater frontier for me is what's the personal legacy that I want to leave behind. And I think it goes back to a little bit of what we chatted about earlier, which is that generosity, that generosity of spirit, generosity of the heart, generosity of wisdom, uh, being able to be in a regular practice of giving and loving and not being so protected. I know for myself, given my own history, that I've lived a lot of my life in a very protected way from a from a heart place. And so I think a lot of my work or or my for the next years is to surrender and be less protected, risk injury more to be able to be more forthcoming with my love, I think is what's ahead for me. Yeah. I always talk about the first step is your, your heart mm-hmm. and coming to that realization of like, you're asking yourself the question, why am I not giving it? What is it going even back to internal family systems? What part of me is afraid to do the thing that I want to do so much? Mm-hmm. Why am I not able to connect my desires with this 
action and figuring that out. And then at the next level, I think what you're saying is so beautiful because, you know, men do associate that ability to have an erection or to be with a woman or to impregnate someone as their proof that they're a man. But there's so many people that don't have a partner or Mm -hmm. don't have anyone to have sex with or are older or have a health issue or whatever. And getting to the point where you can see that it's not just about a physical act. It's not just about, it's offering your presence. It's finding other ways to create life and be a blessing to life. Just like you know, you're talking to this young guy and those bits of wisdom that you gave him planted seeds that will go off and bless other people. And you coming up with this institute, that's you spreading your seed in a way like, I want to maximize the things that I've learned and create all these little babies that are going to go out and spread my message to the world, even after I'm gone. It's not just that one thing you can do. Well, it, it, and exactly. I love the way you, you talk about that because it, it's kind of almost looking at creation. Yeah. The act of creation through ways that are not always, uh, from the male standpoint, penetration. Yeah. Because I think men get fixated on penetration, whether that's penetration sexually or penetration in the world. Yeah, just that dominance. Um, yes. And that's you know, certainly can be a dimension of creation and of, but it's not, uh, I don't think we have to be limited to that. And I think that as men, if we can learn to see all the different options available to us about how to be in the world, that, that, that's a good thing. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned presence earlier, and that is a hundred percent. One of the things that men discount the most, just that that presence is so good for the feminine chaos. So if someone's spinning out of control, whether that's, you know, your child or your partner or in a work situation to just allow yourself to get grounded and offer your presence is such a beautiful gift. And that's a work in progress for me. I, 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 you know, one of the, I'm going to mention the Hoffman process again, that I went through, you know, part of the, what happens when you go through the Hoffman process that you identify all the patterns that you inherited from your parents and your parents' surrogate figures. And my number one pattern that I identified for myself, primarily from my father, was that I leave. I leave energetically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and physically, or some combination. And so that's my, becomes my work, is to how can I work with myself in a way that I don't have to leave, that I can stay present with myself. I can stay present with a partner. I could stay present with a friend. I could stay present with a client. I can stay present with a stranger. I could stay present with just maybe in my relationship to the universe or to God. So that's becomes my probably my biggest practice now is learning how to stay present in all those different forms. I have never heard of the Hoffman method before, but I'm definitely going to check it out because I feel like as a woman in this men's space, I'm kind of leaning toward the mother side. And from that, I want to tell these men, look, you can go out in the world and conquer whatever. One Mm -hmm. of these days, you're going to have to come back and do this work. 
Right. And I feel like the more the sooner you can go within and do that healing work of looking at your family of origin or your earlier influences and seeing how that's manifesting in your current reality. Mm-hmm. Until you do that, you really don't have power over it. It's got power over you. Right. So allowing yourself to see that and then make decisions about how you intentionally want to be different in the world. I think that's awesome. I mean, I think there's a place for the conqueror. There's definitely room for that. I, you know, we, we, we don't need to make that wrong. Uh, exactly. That, that can happen in, in relationship and, and business and the world, but I think it's limiting. I think it's too one dimensional to be, to be limited to that. Yeah. Not only is it not wrong, it's absolutely necessary. We absolutely need strong masculine men to do strong masculine men things. But the way I look at it from a therapist, from a mother, from the feminine is I see a crack in your foundation and that's not going to end well. So stop building and calm and let's look at this and fix it so that you can be all that you were meant to be in the world. And later you're not going to have to deal with a much bigger problem. So I totally agree with you. We need that healthy masculinity to be generative in the world and give its gifts. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for sharing. I love your your message that, you know, as a Christ follower, I see so much of that in your story that take up your cross. And what that means to me is whatever form of suffering you have, Mm -hmm. pick it up and come and you're going to die to what you thought was important. And then you're going to (laughs) see kind of what the real gift is and be raised to this new life. And I see that happening for you, your focus and your the intentionality that you're bringing to your life is is beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you. Can you tell people how they can get in touch with you, your website? Sure. So I'll give a couple of websites. I still haven't fully integrated my <laughs> my professional life yet, but the, yeah. the, the gift work that I do uh, can be found, uh, and I can be found through livinggiftconsciousness.org, .org, or they can find me at Brian Jadon. That's B-R-I-A-N-J-A-U-D-O-N.com. Yeah, well, thank you for joining and sharing your story. And I hope to talk to you again soon. Me too, Angela. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye.